Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. I'm just saying, I think the uh, Warriors choked. Oh, we're live? Okay, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach. I'm with my producer, co-host, Chris Morales, down in the dumps. Very much so. That um, I saw that plane come in, carrying the huge boxes of antidepressants and other medication for the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, we're going to need it. 646-564-9909 is the number. We will talk about it. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call and speak to us. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. We got something to say about Blog Talk Radio today, by the way. We sure do. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. And if you want, you can just listen to the show via the call in line, if that's your only means, and by all means. Do it, I guess, if you want to. Uh, yeah, let's start first with uh, the NBA Finals. <clears throat> Go ahead. I, no, I want your analysis first. Objective. What do you, what we do you already mean? know subjectively what you're going through, but just subjectively, intellectually, please. Um, what do you think happened? Other than the obvious. I think, okay, other than the obvious and leaving my own feelings out of it, I think although the Warriors were the better team, Mm -hmm. the Cavaliers had the best player on the court, and that was clear. And he, the statistics were crazy. I mean, they were putting him up there with some of the greatest people in finals history. He led every player on both teams in points, assists, rebounds, blocks, steals, like every statistical category they track, he was number one. Up in rebounds. 
I mean, out of all things, he, he led in everything. He averaged almost a triple-double. So I think the better player beat the best team. And he didn't have a bad uh, sidekick in, in Kyrie either. Uh, uh, a little relief valve for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they had the best player on the court. And uh, I think the I, – I do believe – and they're talking about potential surgery. Steph was, he wasn't himself. He was probably more hurt than he led anyone on to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, even when we won the first two games, he didn't perform well. Mm-hmm. Other other players were the reasons we won. Mm-hmm. And so some of those shots he missed down the stretch in the fourth quarter are shots he normally makes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was a little more hurt. Uh, and I think, you know, the Draymond Green suspension in game five, followed by the Bogut injury, which kept him out of six and seven there. Uh, Gary St. Jean, I think, said it really, really well on the post game, um, similar to kind of how the Warriors won last year. It's a it's a grind of a season and you need good fortune. Everybody mm-hmm. needs a little bit of good fortune. Mm-hmm. Last year, the Warriors, when they met the Cavs, Kyrie was injured. Um, and this obviously assisted in them winning. Mm -hmm. And this year the Cavs ran into us and we weren't at full strength. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you do need, you do need a little bit of good fortune in that regard. Um, but I think ultimately we, we were just beat by the team that had the best player on the court night in and night out. Okay. You finished? Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Oh, I, uh, well, at a footnote, it wasn't. I didn't really like the fact that like three out of those seven games, Trist, we made Tristan Thompson look like he was the second coming of Tim Duncan. I mean, he was dominating on the glass offensive re, and like he's a nobody. So mm-hmm. that was a little uh, disheartening. Okay. But anyway, that's it. I think I told you. I don't know if it was prior to the series or very early on. It must have been prior. Yeah, because it was when we were talking before our last show. Okay. Yeah. Right? And I said if the um, Cavs want to beat the Warriors, they were going to have to go back in time and look a little bit at what Oklahoma did, but go back in time to the 90s mm-hmm. and make a dedication to defense. Yeah. That means acting like they were playing a souped up version of Reggie Miller. Right. Running between double screens, round picks, blah, blah, blah. And then the refs, which is what didn't count on, allowed a lot more contact. They did. They did. Than happened in the regular season. So they were able to really body him and get physical with Steph Curry, Staff Infection Curry, mm-hmm. um, which he was not used to and really is not in today's game. Right. Okay. So you got that. The fact of the matter is, is with all that, what you said, which is all true, they were still up three to one. That's, yeah. Okay. And this team came back from a three to one deficit to win. Mm-hmm. Um. Draymond not being there for game five was a dagger because that should have been their closeout game. Right. Okay. Um, You could give the Cavs game six on their Mm -hmm. home court. Mm -hmm. Um, 
to me, it was an epic game seven. It wasn't a blowout. It was nip and tuck. No one scored in the last four. four they were unstuck on 89 yeah, for like four minutes seconds. and change. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, having LeBron James having help in the form of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Loves because don't rule out his 14 rebounds. Right. Okay, and battling under the boards. Um made a difference. He was definitely a lot fresher than he was last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, going through the Eastern Conference and just, you know, for, almost like the old Moses Malone, fo fo fo, you know, yeah. just, you know, basically, you know, sweeping teams except for Toronto. But, you know, they didn't have as tough a road to hoe as the Warriors did. Right. Um, I don't want to hear any talk about, you know, them going for the record during the regular season, put a strain on them because you still got to play the games. Either way, right, you still got to yeah. play the game. So you play to win. Did. I don't think it did. Yeah, you play to win. Um, time will tell what, what the state of staff, staff infection carries uh, help is. He said at the post game that no surgery, just got to get healthy, recover. So who knows? Yep. Um, there is an APB out for Harrison Barnes. <laughs> um, I didn't want to get into that. Because. I think they said during during the game seven that when he's hitting and Iguodala is hitting from the three point range, it's they're impossible to to guard mm-hmm. because then you can't stop the back cuts and the whatnots and all that stuff. So I'll close by saying this: um, I don't a hundred percent agree with your assessment in terms of the because the team with the best player overcame the best team. Yeah. Okay. I think the Warriors, both teams, and I said this uh, to my wife at about the six minute mark, I said, both teams look exhausted. Yeah. Exhausted. And both teams from that point, both missed six straight shots on each side before Mm -hmm. Kyrie hit the three pointer. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think uh, LeBron James didn't look exhausted. No, no, he was evidenced by that block of Iguodala's fast yep. break layup. Yep. Because the guy got up so high, he looked like he was twenty-five. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, there should be a rubber match next year. Yeah, the one to one, and uh, well, which will settle it. Yeah, well, there there may be there there very well may be. I don't know what Cleveland State. Uh, the big thing will be Kevin Love. What they decide to do with no, Kevin he Love. signed he signed last year a five year deal. So um, the only thing they would do is trade him. But in terms of everyone's on the contract, except for LeBron. Yeah, he has the player option out. Right. So, but if I were him, I would stay and defend your title. Oh, I'm sure that's what he'll yeah. do. So, and uh, have the rubber match against the Warriors. Everybody healthy, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's what it may be. I mean, Bovada, whatever Vegas is notorious for this, but they've already put out the odds, and the Warriors are the favorites, and Cleveland number two. Mm-hmm. So you know, I mean. Cleveland will be if LeBron stays. Cleveland will be back because the East, unless 
something crazy happens, like I mean, Kevin Durant has an option to to be out and and get with a restricted. He should, he should not come to the Warriors. No, no, no. I'm saying if if something crazy happened and he went to the East to somehow make another team mm-hmm. competitive against Cleveland, otherwise right. Cleveland will be back for sure. Yeah, the West is still uh, stacked. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. State of your Knicks. We. <laughs> We we got oh, the see, draft now, on Thursday. Now now I'm gonna have to get depressed and, <laughs> and and whatnot. They don't have a first round pick. Thank you, Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> no first you're, round pick. You're the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Yeah, draft this Thursday. Yep. So I won't be watching. There's no need to watch. <laughs> That's it. All right. Additional recap. Uh, one month, so now starts the one month wait for training camp, football training camp. So end of July, yeah, end of July. So we'll be back on that topic once training camp opens up. You excited for your boys though? To see what this this monster Ezekiel Elliott is capable of behind the hogs? Absolutely, and I'm all, I'm excited also for uh, my Giants. I'm disappointed in um, the, my uh, the Jets. Jets that they still haven't worked any something out with quarterback. Uh, the quarterback. And I'm faced with the prospect of having to look at Geno Smith again. Yeah. So, but the Giants spent over $200 million on defense. We'll see if it makes it makes a deal. Makes you know. Well, that's where they've always won defense. That's that's where they've always won it when they've won it big. Well, they've always won because they both sides of the ball in terms of the line and the trenches were strong. Mm-hmm. Their offensive line is not like it was in their Super Bowl years, but we'll see. We'll see. Yep. Uh, Juan Carlos update. Juan Carlos. So we, when we last left, when we were doing our uh, The Struggle is Real show yep. on the uh, trials and tribulations and successes of a one named Juan Carlos, quote unquote, uh, we left off with him being stuck on the spot of blame, blaming the baby's mother for, uh, you know, dropping dime on him, causing him have to, you know, report back to CVS and PO and give urines and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's right. Some additional sanctions, shall we call it, uh, en route to, Regaining free, free, free custody—not actual physical custody, but the free custody—to, you know, welcome his young child yeah. back into his life and the freedom to come and go and visit, you know, whenever he wants, right? So that was what he was working towards, and then and there was a hiccup in that because of his relapse, and we talked about it in our last show. The struggle is real. So the main thing we were concerned about when we left off was that he was sitting on the rock of blame, blaming her. And uh, we were going to give our audience a little update as to where he's at. So uh, word on the street is that you have had some contact and uh, can provide us with some update. Yeah. I may, I may have had a, a little contact. Well, how we last left it. And I, and I think you had addressed the audience and it was a good point was that he had forgiven 
her, but you had told the audience, hopefully he didn't forgive her in person. Cause that's just something he needs to do internally mm-hmm. is forgive her, but not go to her and say, I, I forgive you for doing the right thing. Cause mm-hmm. that's not a, that's not a good look. Right. But, um, that's still a blame, an underhanded, blame. an underhanded blame. Right. So, uh, ultimately though, he had been in a state where he was taking it very hard on himself and, and almost, almost allowing himself to play the role of the victim. Mm-hmm. And we nudged him from that and stated, look at, you know, it's okay to acknowledge that, you know, there were some poor decisions made on your part and there are things that we could do better next time. And you got to own that, but we move on, we get stronger. We, we move forward from that. And he, uh, uh, Mr. Juan Carlos was open to that mm-hmm. and and said that that was a very good point. And uh, as far as I know, things are moving in the right direction. There are still some things that need to be done. Um, compliance wise. You know, compliance wise with outside entities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as long as the trajectory continues the way it's going, should be no problem. You also had mentioned uh, about an encounter you had where he was kind of along with, you know, almost going down the victim road. I'm, I'm the victim here road. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also uh, stepping into the, uh, the lane of almost, you know, the effort lane, yeah. the give it up lane. Um, I've had enough of this lane. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if I understand correctly, there was some nudging, some additional nudging on your part. And, um, and sometimes we, we, we nudge with a broom or we nudge with a bat. <laughs> sledgehammer. <laughs> or sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I understand you used the broom uh, and, and, and left him to his own devices and thinking right. and what have you. And, um, he went out to his car, his own, you know, personal space, and then eventually came back. And, yeah, and said, "I got to do this." Yeah, yeah. We went with the uh, we went with the the dust mop, mm-hmm. even gentler than the broom mm-hmm. method. And while sitting with himself, and however it was, he was feeling the initial reaction was, "Yeah." Can't can't do this. Don't want to do this. And I well, I just gotta. You know, I gotta go clear my head. I mm-hmm. gotta, and there was no sledgehammer used at that point. Although mm-hmm. there could have been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just do what you have to do, and just you know, remember that the time is going to come. Life still has to be lived, mm-hmm. and yeah, after after ten minutes, uh, had returned from the thinking and stated, "Yeah, I gotta, I gotta move forward. I gotta." got to make it happen okay so believe that's that's where it's left and and like i said as as long as he continues with that growth kind of mindset if you will Mm -hmm. he should be able to tie off all loose ends that need to be tied off and accomplish what he wants to accomplish all right we'll try and keep tabs and get updates yeah, yeah, yeah. Until, I've got my ear to the streets. Until we clo- close him out and say that he's <laughs> now, uh, we can close off his story unless the book is reopened. 
That's right. So that's right. Uh, I'll we'll consider his story officially closed because it was almost officially closed only by four or five days. Right. When he was going to be, you know, released from outside compliance right. reviews. Right. And uh, so I think if he makes it back to that point, I mean, they're not putting him through the ringer and saying like, you know, years, you know, it's just like a little short time frame of show and prove and, and regrounding yourself, et cetera. And if he makes it through that with the right attitude and gets his ultimate goal, which is to be with his child That's freely, it. then we'll close his story. We can close the book. Yep. Time will tell. Yep. Uh, prior to The Struggle is Real, we started a two-part series on about the change. Changes upon us. The first part of that was we just spent talking about the changes in the substance abuse treatment system in California and more specifically locally here in San Mateo County where we live and work. Uh, And we talked primarily about residential. Today we're just going to go through the other modalities and some new, uh, they're not really new, 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 but they're new in terms of they're now being included in the uh, available services that those in need can receive under this new organized delivery system. Whereas before they were not available in the fashion they're going to be available. We did mention just to, you know, refresh everyone is that they're, they're moving to what we would all know and be familiar with as a managed care system. Similar to the managed care system that is used in healthcare that most of us know and either have a love or hate relationship with, your primary care doctor is like the gatekeeper. You know, you <laughs> got to see them first. Yeah, that's right. And then they kind of, depending on what your needs are, you know, if you need to see a specialist, they then direct you to, you know, when and where. But you got to go through them. Gone are the days where you can just say, hey, man, I got something going on with my foot. I right. need to see a podiatrist. There you go. No, no. see your primary care physician <laughs> right. first. We'll take the extra copay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, the, and the only difference here in this uh, system is um, there's, there's no primary care person per se, but the providers are going to be asked, to be the gatekeepers and how they're going to do that is we talked about the use of the ASAM, okay, the American Society of Addiction Medicine tool, which will be complete for every person wanting or needing services in the system. And that ASAM screening document will determine what their needs are. Yep. So that's kind of the gatekeeper yep. right there. Um, so no more, if, even if someone shows up on your doorstep and you're a residential provider, you got to give them the ASAM tool and the ASAM tool may say, Hey, this person doesn't need residential. They need this. And you got to then refer them to that. And so that's part of the gatekeeping. Okay. So let's first list out, I got it written down here. We already covered residential. So I'm just going to name the other modalities and or services, whatever terminology people want to use, 
that are included in the organized delivery system. And then we can just briefly talk about each one. So withdrawal management, that's new. Detox, and there's two types, medical and non-medical. Okay. Can you give an example? Medical being like? So someone who's an alcoholic, serious alcoholic, would need a medical detox. So they would have to go to either the clinic, has to have a doctor or a nurse practitioner that's supervising it or they're they're in go to the hospital. Yeah. Non medical does not require a doctor or a nurse practitioner or some you know, something like that. Okay. Um NRT, a new acronym, or maybe not not so new, but new to us, uh, which stands for narcotic replacement therapy. So the old thing was just methadone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but because there are more than just since there's more than just methadone out there as narcotic replacement therapies, plural, um, we now refer to it as narcotic replacement therapy. Because a person is all right. And a person may go to the traditional methadone clinic, what we used to call the methadone clinic and receive things other than methadone. They may also go to, um, the county hospital and receive narcotic replacement therapies that would may not be available to methadone clinic for uh, alcohol-based um, treatment. And in this county, which is they they did a cost-benefit analysis, and even though this is not offered by most health plans and what have you, they weighed out the cost of someone showing up in the emergency room. And versus the county just paying for this particular drug therapy treatment for alcoholics. And they looked at the cost differential and said it's cheaper for them to just pay for this drug therapy than to have people going to the emergency room. So highly unusual, but they said it's much cheaper. So And it's $1,100 a shot, and they pay it. Yeah. So you can imagine what the emergency room cost is. Oh yeah, if they're willing to pay for the eleven hundred dollar up there and, therapy and, and, shot. Yeah, and that's just the visit. And you got to think, usually someone in a situation on the street is not walking into the ER. Mm-hmm. They're being brought there by ambulance, right. and all these yeah. costs add up. <laughs> and they're not taking the bus, <laughs> right? Um, so there's NRT, narcotic replacement therapy. And then we have the more traditional intensive outpatient, which we used to call or used to be known as day treatment. And then uh, outpatient, which is the least intensive uh, level of care. So let's talk about withdrawal management. Obviously, that deals with drugs that are physically, that people become physically addicted to, and the primary two are heroin or and opiates and uh, alcohol. I don't think, um, even though it's in big time use, but I don't think it, methamphetamine has come under that umbrella. Right, right. As right. a physically addictive drug. Um, even though I think it's like right on that. It'll be there. It's right on that time. fence yeah, line. You know, they're, they're climbing up the fence right now with it. <laughs> so yeah. it's getting there. Um, 
So here's, here's the weird thing, just for me personally, and, you know, I've been reading all this stuff. I'm still not clear on what withdrawal management is because when you think of someone going through withdrawal, okay, the primary thing that you want to do is to ease what they're going through. Yeah. And that can manifest itself in various ways. There is, you know, drug therapies that they can take, mm-hmm. um, and there's various things that they do, you know, in terms of like acupuncture, d- certain diets they put them on, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah, together. nutritional stuff, right. rest, relaxation, right. uh, maybe a slight exercise plan, uh, holistic kind of approach. Exactly, a holistic approach, right. So right now there's no one that does quote-unquote withdrawal management in the county because I asked. And I'm not really clear on what it is, you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, so we're think we're just making it up on the fly based on what we know someone needs who's in severe withdrawal. Okay. Yeah. Right. But right now there's no there's no clinic you know with ambient lighting, <laughs> right. massage tables, and you know doctor coming in to provide with you know whatever drug therapy they may be using the masseuse coming in the acupuncturist coming in and all of that. There's none of that. So I'm not sure how they're going to make that happen, who are going to be those providers. So that's, but it's new. It's a new service that's Withdrawal available. management. Withdrawal management. OCGWM. We're looking for a property in the county right now. So <laughs> we're going to be completely vertically old, integrated. Old school withdrawal management was uh, either getting someone on methadone or uh, having them kick cold turkey. <laughs> right. Have a toilet nearby, or some some Advil for the cramping, or you know whatever, that. whatever the side effects are, the counterbalance, you know, some noodle, chicken noodle soup, you know, or, <laughs> yeah, or that's what. it. Um, we obviously know what detox is. You asked about medical versus uh, non-medical. Yep. Um, there's also detox. Narcotic replacement therapy is also part of detox. Okay. Some people can go get on some of these therapies at the methadone clinic, and it, for the purposes of weaning them off of whatever opiate they may have been on, use that narcotic replacement therapy and then wean them down and then off. So that's a method right, of right, detoxing. Right. Um, now, we have to be upfront and truthful here. You know, all, as a part of all of this discussion that has gone on regarding this organized delivery system and the different roles the different providers are going to play, you know, we had to have, you know, honest conversation with the methadone clinic. Yeah. You know, because let's just be truthful, okay? I can't speak for every clinic out there, and I'm not even speaking for the one that is in our county. I'm just saying in general, okay, we know just from our years of being around, okay, that not every methadone clinic is in the business of getting people off of methadone. Okay. (laughs) His name is Orville Roach. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They're just not in that business. That's just the reality. Okay. Um, What's the old Chris, Chris Rock line? With the, his there's whole no, cancer thing? There's, the, there's no money in the cure. In, yeah, in the, the cure. money's not in the cure. It's in the disease. Right. So 
Um, so, you know, we, we had to have honest conversations because since this system is going to be, you use the term holistic, right? Mm-hmm. And involve all different types of services, okay, including narcotic replacement therapy, okay, then that means if we do the screening and based on the scoring and what it tells us that, hey, this client may benefit from narcotic replacement therapy, that regardless of what our own subjective opinion may be on that particular model of treatment, okay, we have to go with what that says. And so we have to trust and have confidence that they're going to go there and, and, and that the program is going to um, put them on a dosing level that's appropriate. And I was just having this conversation with my intake director because I didn't know the answer to this question. I was just surmising on my own. You know, if someone's on the street using heroin and let's say they're using a half a gram a day, right? I would think, I would hope, I don't know the answer. So it's something good for me to find out, some homework. But I'll have to do it through back channels. <laughs> but, okay, yeah. But I, I wonder, like, so if they come in, they say, yeah, I've been using, you know, half a gram a day, that there's some formula that they use to determine, okay, so a half a gram of heroin is equivalent to 30 grams of methanol, you know, 30 milligrams of methanol. You're starting dose. to talk my language. You're okay. saying there should be a little math involved. I'm, no, I'm wondering if there is or if there is not. I don't know. I'm just yeah. saying, you know, how does, what does the doctor use to, to determine what to put someone on to start them out? Right. Because we've had experiences where, you know, someone has gone to get on methadone and they're like, what? They're on this? How do you start them out on such a high dose? They're like, you know, a zombie. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what, what information does this doctor use to determine that this would be appropriate? So I'm just thinking to myself that someone would say, hey, the first question would be, well, how much are you using out there? I'm using a gram. I'm using, two, uh, you know, two grams. Yeah, or how much, how frequently. Then, exactly. Well, every day I'm using two grams of heroin, whatever, shooting that up. And then there would be some corresponding, you know, to start the process of breaking them down because, you know, the whole thing is part of withdrawal management. Yeah. So if they're using two grams a day of heroin and you want to ease them off of that and you say, okay, we're going to put you on, let's say, just call it, let's say we're going to put you on methanol. What's the equivalent of that? Is it 50 milligrams, 60, 30, 25? I don't know. I'm just asking. Right. And then from there, what's the goal? Because, you know, oftentimes, as I said before, and you can repeat my full name again if you want. <laughs> go um, ahead. Go ahead. Drop it Is on the me. goal going to be a continued detox or is a goal going to be maintenance? See, that's one of those questions that's hanging out there in, 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 in the discussion and in the meetings, you know, that, you know, don't get directly answered. They get asked, but they don't get directly answered because, you know, I mean, certain re- people don't want them directly. The reality answered. is that, you know, one's a money maker and one isn't. Right. So, but we have an ethical responsibility when we refer, you know, okay, what's going to, because the thing is, is that, I think this is the whole point. These clients are going to be simultaneously doing narcotic replacement therapy and participating in other programs. Okay. 
so for us, since we have a residential program along with other modalities in our residential program, it was where we had the most concern because we want you to be able to participate. And if you're dosing at such a level that you're, you know, you look like you're doped up. Right. Yeah, you're it nodding defeats, out yeah, during defeats, groups. It defeats and... the whole purpose. Yeah, and that's not an affect that we want to see and we want our clients to see in the in the treatment modality. So <clears throat> that's a tricky one, but it is what it is. Narcotic replacement therapy. NRT. And I think we'll bring back uh, our next show and and we all know methadone, but there's a couple of other therapies that have come that are being used now that are you know come to the market and like we talked about the one the county's using I don't remember the name, but let's just uh, come back on our next show and, and name them two additional ones other than methadone and they serve two different purposes, and I think it's good information to put out there. Yeah, I agree. So. So for us, within OCG, we have obviously the highest level of care, which is residential. We talked about that previously. Yep. And we then have intensive outpatient, otherwise known as day treatment. Mm-hmm. And the way we're structuring it is different from how it's the 99% other Outpatient, right. do day treatment. Most is storefront. You know what I mean by storefront, right? So it's like yeah. you go to an office. Or you go building. in, you get your little groups, you, you go you, home. You stay for your required amount of time, and then you go home and you come back the next day. It's in more intensive, so you do more days a week right? Um, and more hours in the day. The only thing is you don't live there. Right. Okay. So... We, of course, have another modality, which is also included in the organized delivery system, but we're the only ones who have it, which is the recovery residence. Okay. Um, well, what is that? We just came up with the name and the state stole it. I think we talked about that. Um, we should have, damn, uh, what, what is it? Copyrighted it or, yeah. or no, registered it. Trademar- right. Trademarked, trademarked it. Trademarked it, yeah. Um, it's the second time that's happened, by the way. Oh, because yeah. remember, we came up with the voice house in 1998. That's right. Okay. That's right. Victims overcoming issues choose expression, voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2000, 2001-ish, we applied for a federal grant to expand the voice program for girls. Okay. And we were a finalist. We didn't get the award, but we were a finalist. We scored very high, but we did not get the award. <clears throat> or one of the awards. They award them regionally, and so we were the finalists for the West okay. Coast region, but we didn't get it. And a few years later, I see on the SAMHSA website <laughs> the voice program, you know, being emphasized and splashed about. I'm like, what is this? And I go and look at it, and they've stolen our name. It's unbelievable. They've stolen our name. <clears throat> Intellectual property. And so I yeah. said, damn, we should have uh, trademarked, trademarked it. Well, so, what are you going to do? Right, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing at all. So we came up with the recovery residence 
as an adjunct to the intensive outpatient program and presented it to the county as a means by which, since residential is going to be shortened significantly from what we're used to, mm-hmm. clients won't know anything from Adam because you only know what you know, right? So, but we know what, you know, we were the only long, quote unquote, long-term residential provider in the county. So we figured that, well, if we could have as an adjunct to the intensive outpatient that people can have continued housing, there can still be that self-containment a little bit, right? Right. Where I can still be going through a large, a large block of my treatment and still be housed. Right. Okay. And so this is what we've been able to create. It's been and the county is supporting it. They've added, you know, included it as a part of their organized delivery system. And I don't know if other entities are going to try and do the same. It's it's next to impossible where we live, by the way, to find any place to start a new program or any type of housing because we're in a housing crisis. Yeah. So I submit to you we'll probably have the only recovery residence for the foreseeable future unless someone finds a, a vacant house that they're willing to, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Throw uh, some bunk beds throw in. And... Yeah. But people are snapping up houses left and right where we, you know, and where we live. Yeah. And this is a full, and our recovery residence is a, a full facility. Yeah. Full, huge facility. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll just throw out a little, a little note here along the same lines. Um, who would have anticipated that that position for us to be in and create that housing component to go along with the intensive outpatient would have fit like a glove Mm -hmm. because you think about the 99%, the storefront kind of uh, the storefront metaphor you used. Mm -hmm. Well, you think about the person who needs intensive outpatient rehabilitation services probably don't have the most stable of living situations. Mm-hmm. And so to come and get your little three, four, five hours a group, whatever it may be, and then go right back out into the environment where you're coming from. Get on the bus. Yep. It's like, uh, you know, you're like, you're like drinking and then getting clean the next morning and just continuing the cycle every single day. Kind of, you know, you're, you're putting out the fire with, it's just a complete 180. And to have the ability to, oh, well, yeah, there's a little bit more containment. Plus, Mm -hmm. they will be with others alike who they can share things with and and work through this together. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like an added support group. Everything that it provides, and it just kind of fell into place, Mm -hmm. was it just the way it it all came together is awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The two go hand in hand, and I can't see one working too well without the other in in, in either facet yeah. SLEs out there where people aren't necessarily going to groups every day are required to go to groups or people who are going to outpatient groups, but go back to the streets or wherever you're, you're not tackling. We, we mentioned holistic with one of the other, you're not tackling the entire problem, right? Only a piece <clears throat> of it. And if that other part still exists, it's, it's good and evil battling Every single day, and this this component, um, 
it's just awesome that it worked out to be what it is and well, that the county was on board. But how could they not be? Really? Well, there's a number of factors that help them being on board. So you got factor number one that it's extremely difficult for people to find independent housing. Yep. Okay. It's extremely difficult for people to find even shared yeah. housing. And uh, th- yeah, and everything okay. I mentioned, that doesn't even bring in the housing crisis, like you said, in, yeah. the, in the county currently. Right. So being able to, when you are, I mean, part of the whole thing about putting someone in residential treatment is they need to be in a, a self-contained environment. You're trying to remove them from their existing environment, mm-hmm. put them in mm-hmm. a new environment where they can, you know, be away from where they were. Okay. So you give them some time and distance but you know we always say time and distance doesn't work it serves a purpose when someone's in residential it does okay and so when you shorten that time and distance the reality is and you know you can say good or bad bureaucrats and politicians care about outcomes right right and so as providers we have to be honest with them and say well there's always collateral impacts and, and unintended consequences. So if you shorten the, the residential stay, you're not going to get the outcomes that you you're seeking. You're seeking. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that there's a, you know, a cause and effect. And so when you talk about the 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 part about them coming on board one of the selling points was not only those two things we mentioned about the housing crisis and blah, 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 but we can have better outcomes when people are, have a continued, even in the lower level of care of being in day treatment, but if they have a place to live with other people that are still working their way through the the recovery process, a little bit of a structure and and you invest in that. Okay you can inc- improve the long-term outcome. Right. Does it cost as much as residential? No. So you save money. You have a higher chance of the person not coming back into the residential setting because they're, they're, they're still in a semi-self-contained setting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, we're just by stroke of luck and fortune, okay? Um, so we got to give it up to luck and fortune, okay? Our recovery residence is only 50 yards away from our, 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 our intensive outpatient building. Right. So the clients virtually don't have to leave the property. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like being on a college campus and you have to walk. Yeah, to the next wing for your next set of classes or whatever, and then your dorms. So, so to the so the reality is now, and the the big change for let's just say us OCG is residential used to be the longest block of treatment, right, right, and now moving forward, the longest block of treatment is going to be the intensive outpatient, the middle step, the middle step, Um, and that's where people are going to they'll have. You know, when they when they step down into that, they'll have a a period of time where it's still intense. You know, I'm not focused on anything outside. I'm just focused on me. You know, all my attention is just in you know on me in treatment. 
because then, you know, as time goes on, the, the attention starts to expand to ancillary things I may need, taking care of any, if I have any chronic, chronic uh, medical concerns, uh, if I have any, any educational needs, if I need a GED, if I need vocational training, you know, whatever it is, you know, that's ancillary yep. to, you know, getting, putting the pieces of your life back together. There's a period in time that you start focusing on those things while continuing to build on your treatment progress. You have that. Because the whole goal is we have this I- idealistic thing that when you step off to go forth on your own, that you have addressed to a significant point, not only your substance abuse needs and issues, okay, but your other needs and issues that contribute to you staying clean and sober. Right. Jobs, housing, education, vocational training, you know, whatever it may be, all those things that encompass a person's life. Mm -hmm. So, and there's no time limit on that middle section, which is a good thing. Right. And because we can still house them, it's a double good thing. I, I, oh, I actually think that's the magical part. Yeah. That's the, that's the key component to the whole deal Yeah, is that it was kind of like I, I was stating in a previous show when we talked about how treatment used to look where your intense portion of treatment was your entire treatment, that yeah. residential, and yeah. then the day would come after a year, however long it would be, you know, good luck, best of luck to you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, See I, you on Thursday. <laughs> I was thinking about it at home um, amidst my depression the other night, Sunday night, uh, when I was absolutely stunned and couldn't say a word to anyone in the home. Not... Um, don't know how this came to me. Maybe I was thinking about jumping off a building, but it was the high dive. So if you, if you've ever gone to an Olympic pool, there's levels, Mm -hmm. you climb the ladder and there's levels to the high dive. Mm -hmm. And your very first level is just a little two step ladder. It's like a normal diving board you'd have in your swimming pool. Right. And then there's a middle level. And I think maybe this is where divers practice Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. And if you climb all the way to the top, that's, that's the high dive. That's Mm -hmm. where the highest portion is. And so how treatment used to look with your full time being that your transition into the real world was like jumping right off of that high dive. Now, okay, well, there's the middle component. So now your fall into the pool is, is only halfway there. Right. And then we also have after intensive outpatient, if people want to continue another portion of care with the outpatient drug free and your um, transitional living, if it's needed, and you can neatly step down to where you're just jumping into the mm-hmm. pool from the normal diving board. And you can just imagine which impact would be greater mm-hmm. hitting that real world that is the swimming pool from those levels. Mm-hmm. And so don't ask me why I was thinking about jumping off high things after the game. But, uh, but that metaphor came to mind for treatment for what it looks like today. And, um, you know, it's new for everybody, not mm-hmm. just us, but everybody who's in this field and, I believe that getting through the kinks of working on something new, which mm-hmm. everything new will have those, yeah. this can actually be a very powerful approach to trying to get folks out into the real world in better shape than they came to us. Yep. And I think they see that um, 
as a not you know it was a novel idea mm-hmm. that we came up with and <clears throat> just happened to time perfectly with the the use of the, the facility the, you know what we have this facility we're not going to use it anymore as an adolescent treatment residential treatment right. program what are we going to use it for <clears throat> so well, add for the folks on the air, I, I happen to work in the recovery residence, so it's a good thing it worked out. Or uh, <laughs> I might be uh, making sandwiches somewhere for people. Um, you it, it, you could have um, – well, let's th- we, we had said at the beginning that we were going to mention something about blog talk, and, and I don't want us to forget that. <laughs> His name is Orville Roach. <laughs> so – Except for the last show when we did um, The Struggle is Real, the prior two shows, we live streamed. That's right. Into the residential facility. That's right. Okay. We didn't live stream The Struggle is Real for various reasons. Um, And we aren't live streaming today because (laughs) producers laughing. Oh, yes. You know, we've had a good run with Blog Talk for about a year use, using the mechanism of broadcasting that we're using. Right. It was very good in terms of its quality, the feedback that we were getting in terms of its technical quality, and not speaking to whether or not we were giving a good show, but that technical quality of the show was good. Right. Okay. And for those of you long-term listeners out there, you're, there, you'll remember before we switched to that method, there were many a technical issue where, we were being cut off yeah. and people couldn't hear us and things of that nature. Right. And what we found resolved those issues. Right. Things have been great. Well, that mechanism <laughs> may no longer be, be available. And so we have to go back to the old uh, method. Um, and so we're, that's what we're using right now. And so we purposely decided we weren't going to live stream just, just to see how it actually, when we go back and listen to see how it, sounds technically right um and of course we, we started preparing an hour before just to uh <laughs> get back used to the experience of going through that route so it's like going through different windows yeah so exactly. now we're going back through the old window that's it and see how that uh plays out so far so good Not so jinx anything yep so I, I deviated from what we were talking about just to sneak that in there because we're coming up on the top of the hour, just looking at the clock. But so the last, the the, the least restrictive um, modality is at just regular outpatient. Yeah. Okay. Old school outpatient. You have now left the intensive outpatient. You've left the recovery residence. Um, and and by the way, you don't a person doesn't is not required to live in our recovery residence to participate in the intensive outpatient program. Right. Um, someone can leave residential and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I can live at home and That's right. still attend, you know, or what have you. However, the same is not true in reverse. If you look at those things. In reverse. Exactly. No, the, the, if you, the if you like of, to utilize part of the county's caveat, which is a good thing. It is in terms of buying into this was that, hey, so since we're going to pay for people to live there, part of the caveat is that they must be participating in a substance abuse treatment program in order to live there. And so you can't live at the recovery residence if you're not participating 
in substance abuse treatment. Right. Um, but you don't have to live there to participate in substance abuse treatment. Got right. that? All right. So outpatient pretty much hasn't changed. Um, it can be one or two groups a week um, for whatever is deemed appropriate by the counselor for length of time. Um, we expect people who are in outpatient to – it's very rare now that someone – in just my historical professional opinion that someone walking in the door would be assessed to just need outpatient. To me, that would be someone who just started smoking weed a month ago. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And exactly. they're realizing, you know what, this might not be for me. You know, I'm, I'm struggling with this. How long have you been using it? I just started a month ago. Okay, let's, you know. Yeah. We can get you to come to come, 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 come talk to a couple of people. Come once and, a week, you know, and yeah. uh, see a counselor a couple of times a month for an individual or whatever. Right. So that's the lowest level of care. The reality, that's usually what someone is, is aiming to step down to. That's the last step on the ladder. Right. Okay. Um, you're no longer living, to, you, know, you know, more often than not, you're no longer residing within our confines anymore when you've reached that stage. Um, you're out there doing your own thing, working, obviously, uh, or going to school and coming back, you know, once a week four groups or at the most twice a week most people are once a week uh once a week most yeah. people yep and meeting with your counselor um anywhere from depending on need zero to two times a month you yeah. know just for one-on-one touch base and some people will come more than the once a week group just to, to hang out hang out yeah. have a meal just check in with people eat our food <laughs> drink our Drink our beverages. Drink our our our, our drought resistant water. <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course, we encourage that because all of that is a part of the process of maintaining recovery. Yeah, building that, that community, connected. that yeah. foundation of being around like-minded individuals. Yep. Doesn't mean that we won't kick you out, metaphorically speaking to the street, metaphorically speaking again, to make sure that you are challenging your fears and building other associations and, and, and you know, friendships and, and, and whatnot outside right. Right. of the realm. Uh, because it speaks to one of, if I get to it, one of our uh, X-File questions that someone raised, which we've answered before, but I just think it ties perfectly in. You know, ultimately our goal is for people to step down, get into outpatient, eventually if they want, and so after outpatient they and they finish outpatient, they complete. You've completed OCG, okay? And it's up to you if you want to then go for graduation. Right. Okay? But um, there is a thing such as completion, and I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag. When I ask the question, I'll, I'll make the connection back, but we we don't want to uh you know make it seem like there this is an uh an ongoing you know, thing you know it comes to an end and then you spread your wings right you know what i mean that's right so, one way shape or form either with us pu- pushing you out <laughs> <laughs> that's right or you walking out on your own saying i'm ready time to time to hit the world and time to hit the world yeah 
So I think we've covered it. Withdrawal management, detox, medical and non-medical, NRT, narcotic replacement therapy, intensive outpatient, what we used to call day treatment, and outpatient. The three that we offer are residential, intensive outpatient, outpatient. Yep. Everything else we we refer to other Out, providers. Yeah. yeah. So that's the new system, the organized delivery system that we have that we're going to be working under. We're starting it internally um, so that when it goes live, we're, we're ready. We're, we're just, already rolling. We're just flipping the switch. So. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Perfect. Good. Good information for, I think, for both ends of the spectrum, both folks who are out there either considering – uh, you know, getting into treatment themselves or know somebody who may need to. And also for people who work in the field, yep. this is what it's going to look like. This is where it's going. Be prepared. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's already rolling. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, good show. Good show. Uh, we do see we have some callers on hold. We appreciate you being patient with us. And we also hope you've enjoyed the show to this point. Uh, we are going to take a short music break. And on the other side, we are going to get into our recovery support time. Change is upon us. Indeed.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Welcome back to Old Town Recovery. I was ready for you. I got it in. <laughs> almost, almost. Um, I got a couple of good X-File questions. Let's hear them. Shall we start with some controversy? I love. The, we welcome the controversy on this show. Get some interesting names. Coco. Okay. From Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico. And it is actually it is spelled phonetically. Okay. All right. Uh is it true that twelve step programs are a cult? Short answer, yes. No, just <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> No, they're not a cult. But the reason the question comes up, to be fair, um, I would surmise to you, Mr. Producer, that this question comes up just because of the religious component to the 12-step programs. And it is not for everybody. And um, I've always said that if... If you like the 12-step environment, but not, let's say, quote-unquote, the religious component of it, then you can, you know, take what you want from it and leave what you don't, you know, what you don't want. Um, But if it's too unbearable or what have you, um, then you have to find other other support mechanisms or um, other traditional treatment means but that's how the 12 step you know the the 12 step is you know undergirded by uh 
you know, religious philosophies and things of that nature. And that's just the way it is. And some people are more prickly about that than others. Um, but no, not a cult in, in the sense of how we know cults to be. Um, because there's no one there trying to, uh, maybe some people are there uh, really espousing on the religious points of certain particular steps. Hmm. But in terms of AA in, in and of itself being a cult, no, because it's, you know, no one's forcing you to attend AA meetings. You know, right. It's right. 100% voluntary for you to come and you can just sit there and do nothing. You don't have to speak. You don't have to say anything. So that's right. Um, and you can choose to believe in their ethos or not, you know, entirely up to you. That's right. So, um, Lola from Pleasanton. Does she get what she wants? Meaning whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. I'm not sure what that's about, but uh, <laughs> you've never heard the song. I'll make sure to uh, <laughs> make sure that's ma- maintained thought, on the servers for future uh, playback. I thought your musical reference library ran deep. Um, I'll okay. leave that one alone. All but, right. uh, we'll go in the historical record <laughs> in, in the clip file. Uh, Salola asks, is manipulation always a negative thing? I take offense at the question in the way it's, <laughs> it's asked because it's asked as if at the, least some of the time it's a negative thing. No, but the way the question is asked is that the word manipulation, like if you look it up in the dictionary, it, it, it the, the word, it has like a negative meaning when manipulation can be positive or negative. You can manipulate um, the keys on a keyboard. You can manipulate, you know, many things for positive outcomes. To me, it's what is the goal of the manipulation? Sure. Is it positive or is it negative? And then that determines whether or not your manipulation is positive or negative. Right. or Or the reasons for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I agree with that. So in the manner in which she asks it, is manipulation always a negative thing? That's almost like saying that the starting point for manipulation is it's a negative. But does it always have to be? Right. And then you have to somehow flip it to a positive when, no, it starts out, you know, just as an equal thing. And then where are you taking it based on what your ultimate goal is? Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, in the English language, it just it is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's changing word. something. Right. It's mm-hmm. a noun, I believe. And so you often hear it, I guess, in this field. Mm-hmm. And typically it is used in a, with a, a negative, negative connotation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, generally speaking, many things have been manipulated to make them better that we use in our day to day lives. Yep. All right, let's hit the phones real quick. Let's go to Hannah from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? Good. Good. Um, so I guess you probably guys get this question a lot, but do you consider addiction a real disease? Hmm. 
Yes, we have got this question in the past. Hmm. Can I waver, Mr. Producer? Can I? Can yeah, I, can uh, I can of I course. Yeah, I mean, we could preface the answer to the question with there is such thing as the disease model that yes. exists out there. Well, I think all of us in the field are in agreement that alcoholism is definitely a disease. And they're moving, and they're very close, because of studying the brain and how it changes when a person is using certain types of drugs and versus when they stop and the changes in the brain when they stop and all that stuff. And then the cravings that go on and, you know, while you're in your addiction and when you stop your addiction and all that. So all from all that study, they're moving very close to saying, and, and I think they have said that, you know, addiction in and of itself is a disease. Okay. The reason why I waver on that, is because my hands are in quotes, by the way. The reason why I waver on that is because I know addicts, and I know addicts will. Well, if it's you know, if even if it you know, if you have an alcoholic and it is a disease, do you think they're going to focus on the behavioral aspect of their addiction, or they're going to oh, I got a disease and that's it? <laughs> yes. Well, so I know the behaviors. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the answer could be yes, okay, and then followed up by a question, however, what are you going to focus on? Because yeah. with every disease, except for the ones that you have no control over, like when people get cancer and things like that, um, sometimes you can associate with them behaviors that have contributed to the disease. Mm-hmm. You follow that? Yes. Definitely. Well, because I keep hearing it's a disease of the mind, but the alcoholism definitely makes sense because it does change your brain. But I think the behavior is a huge thing, too. Right. And I think when someone uses that term, it's a disease of the mind, they may be talking about the behavior. Mm -hmm. Because our brain has to come into play to help us change the way that we think and the way that we act. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you. I appreciate You're very that. welcome. All right. Have a good night. Okay. You too. Bye bye. I, I think they're pretty close to just saying addiction, regardless of whether it's alcoholism or whatever, that it is a disease based on their studies of the brain. I think they're real close. Yeah, but doesn't impact, you know, how you, in my opinion, shouldn't impact how you approach, approach. Uh, helping people get off of drugs or stop drinking, whatever the case may be. I agree with that for sure. Because even if a person has a disease, if they have diabetes, they have cancer, they have something chronic, um, there's these, a, a doctor always prescribes behavioral changes, whether it be your diet or your you know, exercise more or whatever the case may yeah, be. Yeah, things you can control. Exactly. You're not helpless is the bottom line, right? right? Yeah, because... And, well, we certainly aren't going to allow you to uh, to use, the, <laughs> use that. What can I do? <laughs> there's, there's, a, I got the disease, disease, man. There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> right, no. Can you, pass the, can you pass the ketchup? No, no, no. All right, let's go to... 
Jose from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, right, how you doing? Um, Good. Can you speak up, sir? Is, yes. My question is, um, somebody that, as a father, somebody that has relapsed, um, how to go about asking for forgiveness um, to the family and, most importantly, to, to his children. Um, just going, just falling back into that same pit that he left before. But trying so to get just, it. Mm-hmm. Just so to make sure I understand your your what you're saying is, you want to know what's the best way to go about. Um, well, a, 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 a getting forgiveness from your from your family for you, did you say relapsing or just for, for yes, you know for relapsing okay. for relapse okay yes now is it because when you say relapse for the relapse is it because of what you built up in terms of what your what you were going to do who you were going to be prior to your relapse to them? Yes. It, it was like the expectations that, you know, that I've relapsed before. And right. it was like, once again, I've broken their hearts, you know. Okay. Like, okay. So let me ask you this. Um, why, why did you relapse? Um... I would have to put it on a, on a depression, um, anger, just emotions that, um, and I, I believe also separated myself, isolation, separated myself from others that were were clean and sober. Okay. Um, I, I went into isolation phase and. Okay, yeah. so let me ask you this question. But why did you relapse? I honestly could say that I wanted to. Um, that's that's right, the honest stop right truth. there. Stop right there. That's the honest answer. That's the honest answer, and that's where you always got to start. That's yeah. why I kept asking you the question. I wanted you to get there first. So when you think about it in your mind and when you ask yourself the question, that's the answer that should come back to you. Not the yeah. first answer you gave, and not that those things that you mentioned aren't legitimate. They are legitimate. But we yeah. like to keep it very bare bones at the root, simple. And that's the bare bones root, simple gut level truth. Why did I relapse? Because I wanted to. Because yeah. you ultimately you could have had all of those experiences that you mentioned, all of those feelings that you mentioned, and still survived them. You know, and warded them off, got support, and not relapsed. But yeah. you did relapse. Yeah. So when we can be gut level honest like that then we have a starting point to jump from so the next step from that is if I relapsed because I wanted to 
and then I know some of the contributing factors to that, okay, what do I need to do to stop this from cycle from happening over and over and over again? So yeah. it brings me to a very, 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 very important question, okay, that you got to dig down deep for. Yeah. Are you committed to your recovery? Yes. And if that is the gut level truth, then nothing, no one, no person, no place, no thing should be able to change your mind and cause you to do something that's not in your best interest. There's nothing you can say to your family members. You can't say anything. You can't ask them anything. The only thing you can do is do. You can only do something. You can only prove through your actions that you are serious about doing this. There's nothing you can say. And you don't need to ask for their forgiveness. Okay? Yes, sir. You do need to forgive yourself to start that ball rolling, though. A lot of times we forget to forgive ourselves and we wonder what's holding us back. We're we're so hard on ourselves. So you got to forgive yourself, put it behind you, and move forward. Yes, sir. Will do. Thank you. You got to manifest that commitment. You know what I mean by that? You got to, if you really are committed to your recovery, the way you show it is by your actions, not by what you say. And that's how your family will judge you. And when they see you doing the right thing, they'll come to you and say, you know what, Jose, I see what you're doing. I like what you're doing. I'm proud of what you're doing. Amen. Amen. Okay? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. I, I saw you reeling him there with the question. I was okay. Is he gonna is he gonna get there and drop the uh, you know the the honest truth is that I wanted to, but I, I like how you tied into the idea that everything he said first was not untrue. Uh-huh. These are all things that played a role mm-hmm. in my ultimate decision to say, you know what, at this moment I want to use yeah, half it, and it's good to to see. You know, like we've said, and it's said in, in the field over and over and over again, you relapse long before you get high. Mm-hmm. And so the getting high part is the effort, and I want to, and this is what I'm going to do in the moment. Mm-hmm. But the relapse is happening, like you said, when I start isolating, mm-hmm. when I, you know, stop hanging around people who are clean and sober, mm-hmm. when I start letting my depression get the better of me, mm-hmm. and, and that snowball starts rolling, the relapse is on its way. Right. And so good that, you know, he's able to identify both sides of that. It's like Juan Carlos and his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, his, that's exactly right. His, his driving to the cop man and the cop man saying, "Come back in twenty minutes." Yeah. Get, oh get, man. Getting right. all getting all these opportunities to. Uh, I'll tell you know. what, Hollywood could not have written a better script mm-hmm. if they wanted to uh, a movie on you know the the insight behind addiction Mm -hmm. or whatever to to paint that scene where i've been clean and sober for however long 
I'm not feeling it today. I'm on, I go to, you know what? I've made the decision. F it. Mm -hmm. When I get there, I'm told, Hey, you're going to have to wait 30 minutes Mm -hmm. or whatever. And now I've got this added time. I didn't think I'd have to actually think about it. I go shopping the whole cycle. He goes shopping for his equipment. The whole cycle. Yeah. That's serious. Mm -hmm. Um, Dave, Another controversial question from Rancho Cucamonga wants to know why do many programs incorporate spiritual programs slash curriculum into their groups? Well, some programs that aren't faith-based like the uh, 12-step programs may be may have uh, spirituality groups and they, they mean whatever it is that you want them to mean. They're, they're not based on any religion or anything like that, but it, it's a, uh, uh, you know, belief in the, in the industry that unless you're an atheist and that's fine, but if you're not holistically speaking, you, uh, you address all areas of your life. So we say the mental, emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual, et cetera, right? And so some programs do have spirituality groups, and they're very benign. They just talk about you get to speak about what it means to you and and how you define your higher power, quote-unquote. So they're not Bible studies or things like that. So... um, so that's much what are other than the 12 steps, which some of the steps are religious based. Uh, Linda from Santa Rosa. Can someone be addicted to anger? No. And that's an easy cop out. Anger is never the first feeling, but it is probably, we did a show maybe two years ago on this, right? We did. About anger. And you talked about the late great, and I wish I could remember his name, but he told you about what two love and fear or two, two feelings that everything else stems from mm-hmm. and, and anger, like, and we did discuss this in, in the show is, mm-hmm easiest especially for the male mm-hmm. population to mm-hmm. acknowledge or pretend that that is the overwhelming feeling and and express verbally and physically if we put on the brakes and say oh man let's let's step back in time about five or ten seconds mm-hmm. how and we're we're feeling hurt or whatever else mm-hmm. may be the case but yeah we did so I, we wouldn't use the word someone being addicted to anger, but does someone? Are there people who respond to the anger more than others? Right, and yeah. I was going to say you, you may, and obviously using the word addicted is, it is what it is. But you might be addicted to the behaviors that you display when you get angry. Mm-hmm. Addicted to fighting. Addicted to mm-hmm. whatever you know, whatever comes from that feeling that you're acknowledging is anger mm-hmm. and how it manifests itself, the way you choose to cope with it. Mm-hmm. 
fighting, drugs, mm-hmm. sex, whatever, the mm-hmm. gambling, things that people can actually be addicted to. But mm-hmm. the anger itself, like you said, eh, we got to take a little deeper of a look at that and, and what's behind the anger. Mm-hmm. And th- otherwise, it's a cop-out, like you said. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to Lisa from Houston. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. How can we help um, you? So my question is, is um, I'm moving back with my kids after not living with them for about five years now. Um, I'm wondering if it's a good idea just to jump in back into something like that since I'm not used to being a parent full-time. And if I know this is kind of a hard question to answer, but what should I expect? Well, let's go back to the first part of the question. Um, sure. Is there a means by which you can ease yourself back in, or do you, or or is your only option to kind of jump back in? Well, they do have them for, um, you know, I do see them on the weekends and I see them every other weekend, but I'm, that's not really a full time parent. So um, when I do go go home, it is expected of me to be a full time parent. Okay. So that's kind of what I meant. So you you you've kind of been you you you've had interaction with them, right? Yes, sir. Um, and been easing yourself back into the parental role. Um, how old are your your children? Um, I have a ten year old and a six year old. Okay. So the six year old, you should be all good. Mm-hmm. No worries there. The 10-year-old, if we were back in the 80s and 90s, I would say the same, but in today's age. (laughs) (laughs) The age of communication. (laughs) Um, uh, No one knows their child more, better than the mother um, in terms of their personality, how they respond to things, and so on and so forth. Um, So through the easing in process that you've been doing, part of you know, part of what you should be should have been doing, and I hope this has been happening, is kind of feeling out where they are in terms of what has transpired with your life. Yeah. Not so much the six-year-old. Not to say that they can't have be able to express their, themselves. They can, but the ten-year-old more so. What has that been yeah. like? Had the ten-year-old talked to you or said anything? You know, for the first couple years um, when I was struggling um, in my addiction, I kind of um, sugar-coated it, and it was like mommy's going to school, or or, or, um, I obviously knew that he knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. This last time, um, I was really honest with him. I asked Mm -hmm. him if if they taught him um, about substance abuse and and, and told him that's something that mommy struggles from, and... and, um, I'm going to have to go for a little bit to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm honest with him about it, not to a point well, of where I don't want to scare him. What was his him, reaction but, to that? Um, he's a timid kid because he's been through a lot, but he was kind of like, What was his okay. body language? What was his body language it reaction? It was really calm. It was, you know, okay. he, he didn't tense up. He, I don't know if he was, 
saying, okay, I get it, just so I'd stop talking about it, because um, that's the kind of kid he is. But um, mm-hmm. it, it, he didn't tense up. He didn't get angry. He didn't look confused. Um, he accepted it quite well. Okay. Um, yeah. I would, I mean, obviously, let's say even if you weren't in a, in a substance abuse treatment program and, and then going back home, let's say you were, you know, teaching law and you got the opportunity to teach at Oxford and you had to leave, you know, go away for a year or whatever and then come back. Um, it, it makes no difference as you, you know, plop yourself back into the home environment. But just in terms of the personal interactions between you and your children and other family members, since you were the one that were gone and are now re-entering, okay, you just have to be cognizant of that you are the person that's re-entering the environment. They didn't leave. Yeah. You did, okay? Yeah. And with the, with the 10-year-old, I'll just play it by ear. You know, I mean, so in terms of, I mean, you've already had the talk. So <laughs> unless he brings it back up, it's just moving forward. We're not going back in time unless he okay. chooses to. We're yeah. moving forward. And the only thing that's left is for you to do your thing. Wow, okay. That's all that's left. Yeah. And keep your ears keep your ears to the ground. Yeah. You know what I mean by that, right? I do. Okay. Eyes open, ears to the ground. Exactly. It's it's nerve wracking and I'm nervous. I'm I mean I'm I'm more anxious okay. to um, I'm to excited stop, to I do to, it. I have to stop you right there. There's you have to before you step into that environment, you have to resolve those nerves. You cannot bring that into the environment because they're going to feed off of you. So if you present, you know, confidence, security, and 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 uh, you know, joy about being back, and you know, and looking forward to you know being your mother again, and so on and so forth, that's what they're going to feed off of. If you present something different, that's what they're going to feed off of slash respond, react to. Yeah. So resolve that nervousness, resolve that anxiety prior to, because they're not experiencing that. Yeah. If it comes into the equation, it means you brought it in. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. That age ten is like right on the border yeah, there. Yeah, you know which side of the fence that they're on at age ten, especially today's age ten. Back in the day, you'd say, ah, oh, they don't know nothing. Right? Yeah, no. <laughs> today's age ten is like sixteen back yeah, then. There yeah. you go. All right, let's go to. Looks like Ari from Redwood City. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Hi. the show. Thank you. Um, hmm. So um, my question is, is um, I'm a suffering addict um, to um, the substance cocaine, and uh, I, I quit cold turkey on it, and I want to know what the chances are of relapsing, and what are the best ways to prevent it? How long did you use cocaine for? Um, probably consistently for like a year. Like pretty much like every day, and then I took like maybe a three month gap and then started back up on it again. 
All right, let me let me rephrase the question. How long did you use it for, regardless of consistency? Just the day I started till the day oh, I stopped. Okay. How long? So, um, it, since I was 18. How old are you now? I am 27. Okay, so you used for about almost 10 years. Almost 10 years, nine years. Yeah. And out of those nine years, one year was an everyday thing. Yes. Boy, you are a rare cocaine addict. Mm. Do you know that? No. It's rare for someone who uses cocaine for that length of time to be able to use it sparingly, let's use that word until you correct me or tell me otherwise, for an extended period of time and only experience one year of consistent regular use. It usually doesn't work that way. So if that has, if that has been your, go ahead. I mean, like, um, like if it was around, like if like I was at a party or something, like I would use it, I would like, I wasn't like addicted. I wouldn't consider myself addicted to it back then, but like, um, but like recently, like the past year, it's like, um, I found, you know, um, somebody who was able to supply me, and it was just like I was just doing it every day, like, you know, um, in big amounts, too. So it's just well, like... But let, let me ask you, let me just dig a little deeper and just... just sure. It, is is that the only thing that changed, that but just because a, a supplier came into, the, you know, your close circle, or did something else change... That regardless um, I, of if there was a supplier or not, that, you, you know, you, your use would have increased? Well, it was a little bit of that, and then there was a little bit of um, uh, wanting wanting to get something to get me, you know, more amped up and, like, more motivated. Because, like, I was doing school, I was working, um, and I know, like, you know, like, I have a past history of using, you know, Adderall um, for, you know, my ADHD and it was something that I guess that I used um, a substance I used to replace it. Um, mm-hmm. since, yeah, since like I got off of that like when I was like 23. So, oh, okay. So I guess that's like uh, one other reason why um, I started okay. um, abusing it. All right. See, all starts to fit together like a puzzle. Yes. <laughs> all right. Now, so back to your original question. What are your chances for staying clean and sober? Yes. Or I think you said... Or chances of, like, what are the chances that, like, after quitting cold turkey for, like, maybe two, three weeks that um, I would end up relapsing on it? High. Chances are high. Like, is it something that um, I would need to work on, you know, like, behaviorally or something that's, like, what are, like, some good ways or good, like, practices to prevent myself from, you know, going back to that lifestyle? Well, because, first, just from a thinking standpoint, right, forget about the cocaine because the key, that thing that you mentioned was... 
I started to use my ADHD medication for something other than its intended purpose. Mm-hmm. So would it be safe to say that you started to abuse your ADHD medication? A little bit, yeah, because um, there'd be these times, are, you know, where I'd run. These are, mm-hmm. these are yes or no questions? Yes. Okay. See, that's definitive, and that helps us move forward. When we say a little bit, not too much, you know, we, 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 don't, we can't move from that point. So, yeah. yes. And so now follow that as we go along. I started to abuse my ADHD medication for reasons that it wasn't initially prescribed. And then at some point, I replaced it with another, another substance that you know, had similar traits, okay, stimulant, okay, um, and kind of, you know, went along just using that, you know, sparingly and what have you. And then at some point, boom, something happened. I'm not sure what, okay, my use just spiked and stayed that way for a year mm-hmm. before I sought help. Now, what you do have going for you is this. The shorter period of time that you've been using consistently every day works in your favor. Hmm. But what you have to get back to and start getting the answers to, introspecting, analyzing, and this is where other people, not only you, but other people coming to play, bouncing things off of people, telling your story, getting feedback, things of that nature is, why did I start to abuse my ADHD medication? What led me down that path? Because ultimately, it didn't, it didn't matter what you started using. You could have chose cocaine. You could have chose amphetamines, methamphetamines. It didn't make a difference. It was just, it was the, the, the behavior behind it, the attitude behind it is what you have to get underneath. Why did I make that decision? What was going on? What was I trying to accomplish? What was my goal behind doing that? And when you can answer those questions and really understand them, those are going to be the weapons that you're going to use to prevent yourself from going down those same, that same path. Because what you have going for you is I don't have a tremendous history, that a long-term 10, 15-year history of using every single day. That's not, that's not what you have. So that's a plus. Right. The question is, can I use that plus to my advantage to help me you know, jumpstart my recovery. Mm. It makes no difference that you chose cocaine. It could have been any stimulant that you chose. So pretty much just look at the attitudes and like the reasons why Yes, you gotta go back you gotta go back to when you started going from responsibly using your ADHD medication as prescribed to when you started abusing it. What were the reasons that you started doing that? And then where did that where did that take you from there? 
And when you can fully analyze and look at that and understand it, okay, you can then say, okay, I know what happened. I know how it happened. That get, puts me at the halfway point of helping me not make those same mistakes again moving forward. So that, that coming to that understanding and that enlightenment takes a little bit of time. So it doesn't take two or three weeks for someone to come to, come to that. So that's why when you say, if I haven't used for two or three weeks, what are my chances of relapsing? I say hi, because I know in two or three weeks you haven't gotten the understanding of how you ended up where you ended up. Right. If you are four months down the line, my answer would be different. Because mm-hmm. I would say by then... You should have some insight, some understanding, and now it's only about what do you want to do? Are you committed to a different life or or not? Yeah. That's, like, something, you know, that I, like, question myself every day, like, whether or not, like, you know, I can do all the things I can do, like, without being on, um, without being high or, like, without, you know, having to depend on using a drug to like make me or to like make me feel better to get by but what you have to think about is if you have a legitimate real diagnosis okay of ADHD and the ADHD has where an impact that you can recognize not that someone else when you were in school or whatever you know, looked at you and looked at what you were doing and said, hmm, let me get him evaluated, and they diagnosed you. The question is, you now at age 35, can you recognize whether or not the ADHD has a negative impact on you whereby you need medication to help offset it? That's a question you have to answer. Okay. Because now you're grown. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can determine whether or not, hey, does this thing, am I being impacted by this? And, and, or is it impacting my quality of life? That's how I should phrase the question. Is it impacting my quality of life? And do I need some uh, you know, medical assistance to help me with this? It's a legitimate, fair question. And by the way, do not be afraid of the answer. Mm-hmm. Be honest with yourself. Don't be afraid of the answer. I mean, I don't know, like, whether or not if, um, because, you know, I had some, uh, like, mental breakdowns, like, when I was in college, and um, one reason why um, I stopped, you know, using Adderall is because it was making me feel like, um, or my ADHD medication is because it was making me paranoid, and it was kind of like... um, and, like, another reason, too, is because, like, I was using other substances with it. And so I was addicted to using those other substances while being on my ADHD medication and going are you, to are you, like, 12. Are you on any ADHD medication right now? No. Okay. So right now is the time period for you to evaluate yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, medically, 
And as time goes on, days go by, weeks go by, you'll be able to look, you know, introspect and, 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 and analyze, hey, do I, do, I need, do I need any of this stuff? Knowing how it made me feel before, do I need this stuff? That's, yeah. that's when I said, don't be afraid of whatever the answer is. Let's say, the, let's say you do a serious introspection, serious conversation, serious analyzation, and the answer is, you know what? Because of what I suffer with, it does impact my life, it has a negative impact on my life, and so I need assistance with that. Well, what you may do this time as an adult is do more research in terms of working with your doctor to have something that will not have that impact on you a, a drug that makes you feel paranoid and what have you which yeah. most stimulants most stimulants have that impact mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know the medical answer to that but it's something for you to think about and discuss honestly with others and introspect on with, within yourself honestly sure is what I'm, is what I'm trying to say Okay. No, it sounds uh yeah, it sounds great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Have a good one. You too. Bye bye. Bye. How are we doing on time, sir? You got about two minutes. All right, let's take Mr. Uh Javier from Houston, real quick. Javier, welcome to the show. Um, hello. I just how have you doing? a question. I'm doing fine, how about yourself? Good. Just a little bit disappointed on the Warriors, but I'm all right. I'm right there with you, sir. I'm right there with you. <laughs> no comment, but go ahead. Um, can I ask? The, I mean, this is my first time doing this. No, no problem. Relax. Okay. You only got a minute and a half, though, before the producer cuts you off because we're, on, we're short on time. So. Okay. Go ahead. Should I- should I ask you the question? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, why am I having dreams of using drugs? Why does it feel so real? Uh, because anyone who has experienced any use of drugs for an extend, at least an extended period of time, six months to a year, what have you, of consistent use, okay, um, okay. and you stop, it's normal to have dreams about it. Dreams about use, I mean, and vivid, like feel, you wake up and you feel like you've been using, you know, like it's so real. Dreams, absolutely normal. Oh, okay. Especially in that early period of when you first stop. But as time goes on, those dreams will eventually, you know, they, they start to distance themselves in terms of time. But absolutely normal. I don't know anybody who was that's used drugs and stopped that never had a dream. Cause I, I like there's there's times that I actually do wake up and it's like I don't know if this is weird, but I'm just trying to be honest. I like well I wake up and I feel that like paranoia just comes. Like I feel like I'm hearing things. I don't know if it's because the noise is out there or it's just because I just woke up, but I just, I've been having sometimes those kind of feelings. Is this, is this from when you wake up from out of the dream? 
I'm not sure. Okay. I'm getting the cutoff signal from the producer. Okay. Javier, can you call yes. us back on our next show so we can continue the conversation? I will, more definitely. All right. I want to get into that. Okay. All right. All right, all right. thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. That's it. Go. We're we're behind. Say what you got to say. Don't interrupt I'm, me. I'm I'm good. That's it. Great good. show. Great show. Uh, for the callers that we didn't get to, please call back at our next show. Again, it's going to be two weeks from now, not next Tuesday. So if you're hankering for some recovery talk come next Tuesday, feel free to dip into the archives and pull up a show that you haven't heard yet. Or if there's a show that you have heard that you really like, to go ahead and listen to it again. Uh, until July 5th. <laughs> until next time, July 5th, we wish everybody, I guess, a uh, safe 4th of July weekend and a safe couple of weekends um, and some productive weeks here. And we will talk to you all on the 5th. Drums, please. Here it is, the groove slightly transformed, just a bit of a break from the norm. Just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance? Give me a soft, subtle mix, and if it ain't broke, then don't try to fix it. And think of the summers of the past, adjust the bass and let the alpine blast. Pop in my CD and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back, cause it's summertime.
sitting with your friends, y'all reminisce about the days growing up and the first person you kissed. And as I think back, makes me wonder how the smell from a grill can spark off nostalgia. All the kids playing out front, little boys messing around with the girls playing double dutch. While the DJ spinning a tune as the old folks dance at your family reunion. Then six o'clock rolls around. You just finished wiping your car down. It's time to cruise, so you go to the summertime, hang out, it looks like a car show. Everybody come looking real fine, fresh from the barbershop, applied from the beauty salon. Every moment fronting and maxing, chilling in the car, they spent all day waxing, leaning to the side, but you can't speed through two miles an hour, so everybody sees you. There's an air of love and of happiness, and this is the Fresh Prince's new definition of summer madness. That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.